0: Welcome to System Shift, the Greenpeace podcast that explores how we can create systemic change in our economic, political, and social systems. Today, we have a very special guest, the economist and author Guy Standing. He is a professorial research associate and former professor of development studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at University of London. He has long been concerned with the economic models dominating our society and their impact on labor and society as a whole. Guy's latest book is The Blue Commons, in which he focuses on the economy of the sea and how it can provide solutions to the economic inequality created by what he sees as a rigged system, supporting the already unequal market and political power of privileged individuals and businesses. Guy argues that the neoliberal model that emerged from the economic revolution of the 1980s, led by the Chicago School and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, dismantle the social institutions and regulations of the post-war era in favor of finance and global capitalism. We also look at the subject of one of Guy's earlier books, The Precariat, the hugely influential first account of a growing class of people that faces insecurity, moving in and out of precarious work that gives little meaning to their lives. Guy predicted the emergence of a political monster if the insecurities and inequalities affecting the precariat were not addressed. And we look at how this prediction manifested itself in the emergence of Donald Trump and similar leaders. Guy also warned of the internal divisions in society which have led to the villainization of migrants and other vulnerable groups susceptible to the dangers of political extremism. He argues for a new politics that puts the fears and aspirations of the precariat at the heart of the progressive strategy of redistribution and income security. Guy was a founding member of the Basic Income Earth Network and we explore the potential of universal basic income as a tool for tackling the worsening crisis of inequality, climate change and authoritarian populism. Guy argues that a basic income system is an essential component of an emerging alternative economic vision, a necessary pillar of the reimagining of work and economic security in our crisis-ridden world. Basic income scheme underwritten by taxation of the rich would reduce economic inequality, it would also help promote gender and racial equity, and it would help to equalize power relations within households. Join us as we explore the impact of neoliberalism on our economic system and the rise of right-wing ideologies around the world in response to the growing insecurities and inequalities of the working class. So, without further ado, Guy Standing. Welcome here. So nice to have you here. It's a pleasure to be back,
1: as it were. <laughs>
0: yes, certainly. So, you have done so many interesting things that we I want to go through here, but uh, let's start with the recent developments. What's on your agenda now?
1: Well, it's been an interesting experience because I have just written a new book called The Blue Commons, which is, in a sense, the latest phase of of a series of books that began with my concern about the economic model that has come to dominate over the last 30 years. We think about a bit neoliberalism, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And I've just come back from speaking in the British House of Commons to MPs and their assistants and so on, big audience. And it was very interesting because I began by putting The Development of the Blue Commons, which is about the economy of the sea, in the context of the work that I've been trying to do over the past 25 years. And the narrative begins with going back into the 1980s, when, as you will remember, there was an economics revolution, literally, in which the old social democratic model of the post-war era, had broken down. And it was um, a revolution which was led by the Montpellerin Society of the Chicago School and Thatcher and Reagan launching it politically.
0: And uh, for listeners, the Chicago School is the neoliberal headquarters of
1: economic reform, yeah. That's right. And basically their model was that they should promote a free market and that this meant dismantling the social institutions and the regulations of the post-war era. And what I argued at the time and have been arguing ever since is that in reality they weren't creating a free market economy at all. They were creating the most unfree market system that was highly regulated, but regulated in favor of capital, regulated in favor of, above all, finance, global finance. Up to that period, financial institutions were regarded as intermediaries, you know, facilitating investment, facilitating savings, and so on. But instead, the Financial liberalization of that era has produced a global economic system which I've called rentier capitalism. And what rentier capitalism means, in essence, is that more and more of the income generated goes to the owners or possessors of property private assets physical assets financial assets and so-called intellectual property and less and less has been going to labor the people who perform work and labor and the model made it even worse for people who perform labor and work by saying that the social state, the welfare state had to be shrunk as part of the privatization agenda. So we had privatization pushed by these neoliberals all over the world, including in developing countries, at the same time as they wanted to squeeze the social state to reduce spending on welfare policies, public services, and so on. So it was a model that in a double sense, was penalising workers. By workers, I mean not just members of trade unions and people doing jobs, but also all people doing care work and and living on the edges of society. All of these people were penalised. As well as local communities, of course. Exactly. So I wrote a book called The Precariat: The New Dangerous Class, And when it came out in 2011, a lot of my left-wing friends said, Guy, you can't call it a class. And I said, well, don't stick yourselves into the 19th century when Karl Marx was writing, because that was a different era. It was a different era, and industrial capitalism was emerging. Today, we have what I call tertiary activities, services and things. And our class structure is fundamentally changed. And I'm sure Karl Marx, if he were alive, would have understood that you evolve with the economic system and your conceptual approach evolves as well. I think it's now accepted that we do have a precariat. And when that book was published, I predicted on page one that unless The precariat was understood, and unless we had a politics concerned with the insecurities and inequalities affecting the precariat, we would see a political monster. The political monster came in 2016 with the emergence of Donald Trump, a Donald Trump who was promising to bring back the past, and it, people listened because the insecurities and inequalities had grown, and even an ogre, a disgusting man like Trump, would get some of the less educated people in the precariat supporting him. It was the same with Brexit in Britain. The same with various right-wing ideologues who emerged in this period, and of course, that's happened because no policies for the precariat have developed, and so we even get in Sweden far right now, even in Italy winning far right, and in various other countries. So my warning, in a sense, has proved, unfortunately, correct. Let me just say that I think for your listeners, we still need to say, how do you define the precariat? And I think it's important To realize that, as I've said it in Sweden and other countries, and I've been asked to talk about the precariat over 600 times in 40 countries. I mean, it's a global phenomenon. Every day I receive emails from people who say, I am part of the precariat. And we need to understand what the precariat is. It's not just about having insecure jobs. And what I've argued is that you need to look at the precariat in three dimensions. The first dimension is you have unstable labor, insecure labor, and you don't have a sense of an occupational identity or narrative. You feel you belong to any particular profession and you're you're developing yourself through your labor and work, that part. That part, I think, is, is relatively easy to understand. And this is the first mass class who, on average, has a level of education greater than the level needed for the sort of job they do. The second thing is that people in the precariat have a volatile income and often very low income and are losing non-wage benefits that were built up in the post-war era. Most do not have the prospect of a good pension. They don't have the prospect of good medical leave and pay. They don't have the opportunity for paid holidays and things like that. And at the same time, this is the first mass class, very, very importantly, who are living on the edge of unsustainable debt. Their life is defined all the way through by having debt and the prospect of debt and therefore being economically insecure. Would I please ask you to
0: explain also the link between the neoliberal reforms and why this debt
1: circle widened and increased well, so much? The, just to go on on the side there, this is very much related to the rentier capitalism that I started with because finance has emerged as i like to put it this way the finance is the tail that is wagging the economic dog rather than the other way around and finance wants everybody to be in debt that's their raison d'etre that's their their justification they want us to be in debt because that's how they make their money and of course for millions of people in the precariat that is their life and they are exploited through the debt mechanism. And this goes very well as far as finance is concerned because the incomes, the earned incomes of people in the precariat tend to be very volatile, fragile, and are often very low. But to go on, the essence of the precariat and most importantly, most importantly, is the third dimension, which is that People in the precariat have a sense that they're losing the rights of citizenship. They're losing social rights. They're losing civil rights. They're losing economic rights. They're losing political rights because they don't see in the political spectrum parties or politicians who are representing their interests and aspirations. And they're losing cultural rights because they feel they cannot belong to communities that give them the opportunity to preserve and develop their cultural rights. The point that I want to end that definition is that, above all, a person in the precariat feels like a supplicant. A supplicant is someone who has to rely on other people and other institutions to give them security. They cannot have it as a right. They have to make appeals, rely on charity. And the original definition of precarious, going back to the Latin, was to obtain by prayer, obtain by begging. And if you're in the precariat, you feel that you are a supplicant all the time. And that is, of course, has terrible, stressful consequences for mental health, for political psychology, and so on. And to get to your question, here we have a situation where the precariat, as emerged in the period from 2010 through today, consists of three groups, really. The first group are the ones who are not particularly educated, relatively speaking. They belong to old working-class communities and or families. They were industrial working-class communities and they listen to populists who promise to bring back yesterday and promise to get the aliens the migrants the refugees the the minorities out of the system so you can have the past back these people are frightening and they have an audience in that part of the precariat and for a long time that part was a very large part of the precariat The second part of the precariat uh, consists of the minorities themselves, migrants, uh, racial minorities, people with disabilities. These people are part of the precariat. They won't vote for neo-fascist populists, but they tend to be disenfranchised. They tend to have to survive and keep their heads down. But as uh, everybody who knows, uh, sometimes the pressures get too great, and they have a day of rage. I call these the nostalgics. They don't have a sense of home anywhere, and they don't have a sense of having secure rights. And the third group, the third group are those who went to college, went to university, were promised a future, if they did that. And they come out with debt, they enter the precariat, and they see a life of being in the precariat and they don't see any attention to the ecological challenges of the time, the social challenges, or the aspirations for a different type of life from the political circles, this group is the growing group. I call them the progressives, and this group is not going to vote for neo-fascist populism. They're looking for a new politics, a new politics of paradise. And for me, this is the great hope, this part. And I am hopeful, I am hopeful that gradually we're seeing the precariat emerge as a class for itself, in which this third group is the leading expanding group. So what you're really hoping for is that
0: all these groups unite in the understanding that the current system is destroying the planet, and all the effects on these groups are similar in the sense that they're
1: all disenfranchised from making the lives they could have. Yeah, and that brings me back, Carl, to the economic narrative that's the context in which the precariat has been emerging. Because the economic context is that we are now globally dominated by global finance. And global finance has been increasingly concentrated in what's called private equity. Now, private equity and venture capital and the plutocracy that's emerged all want short-term profit maximization. And that's why they are giving overwhelming emphasis to GDP growth, economic growth. We have it so that the politicians say, we must have faster economic growth, we must have faster economic growth, and we must have faster economic growth. And this growth fetish means that all the ecological concerns get actually treated as residual issues they make the rhetoric about global warming and wanting to do something about it and setting up uh, cop 25 cop 26 cop 27 and next this year to be cop 28 and cop 15 in montreal and all these wonderful agreements but in actual fact they're not tackling the economic causes of our crisis rather capitalizing
0: on the negative effects in new economic ways so Uh,
1: they're offering mitigation but they're Mm. not offering a constructive structural challenge to rentier capitalism and when i wrote the book called the corruption of capitalism which is about how this has emerged there was one chapter where i said one of the things that the neoliberal rentier capitalism model has done is deplete society of the commons now the commons go back throughout our history if i speak to anybody from any european country but also any other part of the world incidentally the idea of the commons can be a little obscure to start with, but once you explain what the commons are, they said, ah, we have this, we want this. A commons is something that belongs to all of us. And it goes back to ancient Rome, the Justinian Codex of AD 534, which said that there are four types of property, private property, state property, nobody's property, and common property. And among common property were the land, the minerals, the sea, the seashore, the air, and the social amenities built up by our ancestors that belong to us as society. And you can trace the development of a commons perspective through to Magna Carta and the equivalents in other countries, through the Charter of the Forest of 1217, which said that fundamentally everybody, who is a commoner, including you and me, has the right to subsistence in the commons, and that the commons must be preserved by the government, the monarchy, and whoever is in charge of society, that should be passed on to the future generations, preserved and passed on. And this act of commoning is is a word that you taught
0: me actually once. Um, I think this is really interesting that when Neoliberal economists talk about the tragedy of the commons They just look upon it as, as like equals it with property rights And what could happen if when nobody owns it But actually commoning is a concept in which we Correct. are partakers We are not owners, we are partakers in a common joint management of this So actually a true commons is not, you know, lack of management is a proper management to benefit all Or how would you express it?
1: No, well, you've raised my blood pressure because you've mentioned (laughs) the tragedy of the commons. Well, that that is associated, as everybody in social science knows, with Garrett Hardin's 1968 uh, article with that title. But actually, what he was talking about was open access. And you've put it very nicely. A commons requires governance, And it didn't need Eleanor Ostron to to teach people that. The reality goes way back through our history, that it's always been understood that for a commons, you need a governance with a steward and trustees looking after it, managing it. And you need gatekeepers, voice organizations with agency able to hold the stewards to account. And you had to have rules on access, rules on use, rules on on other things that I've described in my books on the commons. Now, the irony is that, of course, Hardin, when he was writing in 1968, he was actually in favor of complete privatization. He believed, and this was why it was picked up and supported by the neoliberals so much, that you should have private property rights, and that meant capitalism to take over from the commons, but actually taking over from open access. And what he didn't talk about, of course, was finance, and he pretended, like others, that if you had private property rights, they would look after the future because they want to make profits down the line. Finance doesn't deal with that. Finance wants profits in five years, seven years at most, and finances increasingly dominated. But the irony is that Hardin also wrote an article which anybody who thinks that he was a sensible person should read called Lifeboat Ethics. And his argument was about lifeboat, that the lifeboat was full of people like him, and therefore it made sense to push off anybody who was in the water drowning push them off the boat because if they got on the boat the whole boat would sink and they themselves would die as well as the swimmer now this ethic went further in his mind so he was campaigning against a world food program actively campaigning and wanted no world food program because on his warped view If you gave the poor food, they would multiply and survive, and there would be too many people eating the food and would affect people like him. Now, if I repeat his argument, you would think it's an exercise in madness. So I invite any of your listeners to go and read his article because that is precisely what he argued. But let's return to the commons. Because the commons has been usurped and plundered, that's the title of my previous book, plundered by being privatized, by being commodified, by being financialized, and increasingly turned into a zone of neo-colonialism. So the World Bank and others have been encouraging global finance and global corporations to convert communities in developing countries into export-oriented zones of production, destroying local resources, spoiling communities, destroying mangroves, destroying the capacity of those economies to reproduce themselves. But at the point there, of course, once you go in an aggressive way to convert local communities in developing countries into export-oriented activities for the benefit of global capital you destroy the capacity of those local communities to reproduce themselves and develop for their benefit of their own communities. And this affects the oceans and the sea more than anything else. And that is the subject of my new book.
0: You have seen the effects of the European fishery agreements with uh, many communities around the world, but all the profits are sent up and the local communities have their commons destroyed by the huge European ships stealing almost all resources. When you have this kind of short-sightedness of financial capital, you build a system where we have too few lifeboats and uh, then the people in the lifeboat push all the others out of the world, so to speak. What would you suggest then? How would the seas better be managed as the
1: commons they are? Well, I think the problem started in a big way when we had the enclosure of the sea. And as most of us know, when we know our history, that the great impoverishment of the European workers began with the enclosure of the land. In Britain, we know that big enclosure acts of the Tudors and then the Victorians basically created contrived scarcity of land, and pushed people off land and pushed them into the labor force as a proletariat. And in other countries, you know, everybody should remember that what radicalized Karl Marx was the enclosure that took place in the Moselle Valley areas. And other people will remember the enclosures in their countries. But what's happened in the sea? Is far more dramatic, but far less known because we don't live physically in the sea. And it began with the Truman Proclamation of 1945, where imperialistically the United States declared that 200 nautical miles from its shores was henceforth its state property, belongs to the United States. This was an act of enclosure, creating state property. Few other countries started to follow suit and to make a long story short in 1982 with the passage of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea we had a situation where every coastal country in the world was given as state property 200 nautical miles from their shore with some negotiations on how you shared it if there was several countries affected. Now what this did was enclosed as state property 138 million square kilometers of sea. Now, enclosure is the first step to privatization, because you have to have state ownership before you have privatization. And what we have seen is that governments have created privatized assets in the sea. And at the same time as they've commodified things that are in the sea and allowed global finance to come in behind and accelerate the conglomeration of corporates who are benefiting from taking from the sea. That's the story, okay? And then also, even the harbors have been more and more privatized. So it's like
0: a reinforcing structure there.
1: Yes. I mean, there are 835 major ports in the world okay and it's an incredible thing my own country has 120 ports and harbors all of them have been privatized and most of them are owned by foreign capital and by finance by private equity extraordinary and what they've done when they get that ownership is they convert it for the interests of global trade but not for the local communities. so you have destruction ecological destruction, social destruction, and so on. And that has been accelerating, and you're absolutely right to to mention that. But let me go back to fishing. Because fishing, under the UNCLOS, as it's called, they had a peculiar concept called the maximum sustainable yield, MSY, which some mad crack US civil servant in 1949 invented. His theory was that we actually should maximize or optimize the taking of fish from the sea because if you took a lot of fish, it would thin the population of fish and that would allow the young ones, the virile fish, to produce more because you would be catching all the old fish. And therefore, it should be the maximum sustainable yield, not too much, but a lot. And that concept, was taken into Anklos, And to get the agreement of rich countries with long-distance fishing fleets, they said any developing country that couldn't catch up to its maximum sustainable yield had to make a fishing access agreement with a foreign country. But the
0: whole ideological basis for this is also that all nature is human's property, we have a dominance exactly. and control relationship to nature. So it's like fundamentally flawed in that sense.
1: Absolutely. It's a disgraceful way of looking at the sea, looking at what's in the sea. We have a situation where there are 28,000 known species of fish in the sea. And over one third are unable to reproduce because the mortality rate is higher. So we're losing Thousands of varieties of fish. But the story of the fishing access agreements has meant that there are over 300 today, whereby foreign countries and foreign corporations are taking all the fish from the countries, developing countries, creating an ecosystem collapse, making huge profits, so that the countries all around Africa, in Latin America and Asia, are actually benefiting less than 10% of the value being sucked. And of course, globally, long-distance fishing fleets, we're talking about boats longer than 100 meters, 140 meters. The biggest fish factory out there is 244 meters long. They can take thousands and thousands of tons each day, that sort of boat. And the agreements have been used to, as I say, a neo colonial activity, which has been compounded with turning local small fish into fish meal because you need it for aquaculture, fish farming. And that's a zone of financialized capital that every Scandinavian knows about, particularly if they're Norwegian, because Norway has become the major producer of farmed salmon. To make matters worse, the MSY
0: you mentioned before, even those recommendations are not followed because in Europe, when you <laughs> exactly. decide how much to fish, it's the governments who say how much. So first the commission makes a recommendation based on that, and then the politicians decide, the governments decide, and almost always they decide to fish more even than that is recommending.
1: Correct. The reason there is that they. Fishing management organizations, including the common fishery policy, but also all the producer organizations that have been set up and the regional fishing management organizations that exist. All of these have been taken over by corporate capital, the big industrial giants of the seafood industry. And they dominate. You're absolutely right. What happens? They have a total allowable catch that is supposed to exist, right? The scientists recommend a certain amount. They say if you catch more than that, that you will have resource collapse. But every time, the actual agreement is something like 20% above what the scientists recommend. It is resulting in the collapse of fish populations all over the world. And then they introduce marine protected areas. Right?
0: Half-protected, maybe we should Well, call they're them.
1: not even protected. <laughs> Actually, industrial-scale fishing is greater in marine-protected areas than outside them. I mean, it's pathetic. So we have a fig leaf, and I think this is part of the collapse of the blue economy. But can I ask you then some questions on how to solve this? So
0: what would a proper system of ecologically functional network of marine-protected areas mean, and how will we do that? And how should we manage
1: our seas, do you think? Well, we haven't talked about the biggest problem that's coming up this year in July, which is deep sea mining and the various other aspects. But leave those aside for the moment. Any progressive agenda from the point of view of where we are today, not where we might like to be, but where we are today, Has to have two things in mind. The first is that the ecological imperatives must be foremost. And that is why increasingly I'm in favour of something like degrowth rather than growth as an overarching ideological orientation. You mentioned earlier the importance of not taking a humanistic approach to the point where nature exists for humans. We are part of nature. We must develop a concept of conviviality, thrivability, through our living in nature, with nature, as nature. So I think that's fundamental. The second thing is we will not have a new progressive politics unless we have new forms of agency new forms of voice, the sense of governance by the commoners, for the commons, giving that as priority so that the living standards are mediated through local communities, organizations that represent nature, preservation, reproduction, who can be gatekeepers and be part of the governance of the system not from outside but inside and that sense of revitalizing governance as and by the commoners is vital how would such a system of
0: increasing cooperation rather than only competition look
1: like well for example you can go to we mentioned ports earlier okay it is a total disgrace that we are allowing our ports to be run and developed by finance and corporate capital and not by local communities and the interests of the commons. I've been analysing a particular case of Teesside in northeastern England, which is the fifth biggest port of the country, And it's a good example because it's now run by a Canadian private equity company and they're interacting with the government, which is complicit with what they're doing. They're expanding the port to make it a deep sea water port for foreign trade and therefore big, huge container ships and things. And recently they decided unilaterally, to take 250,000 tons of sediment from the river and take it offshore, dump that offshore. And shortly afterwards, all the crabs and lobsters and shellfish and things started dying, twitching, dying. And if you take pictures of the beaches around there, there are thousands of dead crabs. It's a horrifying sight. Now, the local fishing communities have been destroyed and they've all been saying it's due to this putting this sediment out there irresponsibly. The company has said, no, 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 no. It's the algae. Now, the coincidence is too much to believe the company. The government, which is working with the company, has said, well, we're not sure which way, we're not sure. My point is this. If we had a proper governance system, those communities of fishing folk and the local people living there would be part of the governance before the decision is taken, so that the precautionary principle would be respected. So stakeholder-based logic rather than shareholder-based logic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas the shareholders sitting in Canada and elsewhere are making nice profits from this, the local community has been destroyed. Now, there are examples in most countries of where the local community and the commoners have been completely ignored. Now, we must fundamentally change that. It's a new form of eco-socialism, if you like, but it's blue-green. You know, I don't like the term green so much these days because we're neglecting the blue and the oceans cover 71% of the world. So neglect the blue is not good enough. It's not good enough. So that's the thing. Then I will get to my last point, which goes back to my whole argument, which is that our income distribution system has broken down. Broken down. Goes back to why it's broken down and we began the conversation. And I believe that we need to produce what I call commons capital funds. A build up a system in which you say, to all those who are benefiting from taking our commons, you have to pay levies to compensate the commoners who are being deprived. And if you are doing activities that are causing global warming and pollution, and you get round the regulations because they're not strong enough, you have to pay a levy to compensate the people who are being adversely affected. That's the basis of the argument. It's a justice-oriented ethical argument. And they put that into the fund and the fund has to be invested in ecologically sustainable ways and you build up the fund and you distribute the dividends from the fund as basic income. And for me, this the Norwegians have got the right start with the Norwegian oil fund, which is a fantastic concept, but they haven't gone the next stage both in terms of moving away from just thinking about oil to other common resources, including salmon and including hydropower, and they haven't moved to the next stage, which is to say that the commoners are equal and every commoner must have an equal dividend. You shouldn't be allowing this to be used for whatever a particular government wants. That's a matter of income tax, consumption tax and so on.
0: The interesting thing with the Norwegian oil fund is recently, it actually gets more additional capital from its own management rather than new oil revenue.
1: Quite. That was the long-term intention. Because once you build up a fund, even in, as oil runs down, it's now the biggest sovereign wealth fund, if you like. It's the biggest capital fund in the world, except for the Chinese, their the state one. And It has changed the income distribution system in Norway so that if you look at the distribution system in Norway today, every decile below the top decile in the distribution system is better off than anywhere else in the world. So all the way down, second decile or to the poorest decile, they're still better off than any other decile, comparable decile in any other country in the world. And that is why a fund like this can help with the distribution question. It can help with putting the costs on those who are causing the costs and therefore discouraging them from doing so, and has a social purpose as well. For me, this is a no brainer. And I'm glad to think that more people are arguing in a similar way. And then, of course, we need other regulation in the
0: financial system so that these funds themselves don't become the new capitalists that destroy communities
1: around the world, of course. Absolutely. And that is why the two things must go together. The governance reforms, so that the funds are operated independently of any particular party or government, but with an orientation to this sense of commoning and common nature an ecological reproduction, with the values of the commons that I describe in the book, the seven principles that I outline, as the guiding ethical lines for the fund. If you do that, you get that balance back.
0: Now we're actually coming closer to the first of your research that I came into contact with, and that was the one on basic income. I mean, when you have been describing the precariat now, actually I see a link between old-fashioned North-South colonialism and so on. The, the groups that we now identify as precariat here in, in the North, we have actually seen long time during all the colonistic area in the South. Now, they had a, many countries in the South have different struggles to get rid of this colonialist heritage, but I know you have been leading some experiments also in the Global South with uh-huh. basic income.
1: Can we learn something from these experiments up in the North too? Yeah, definitely. I've been advocating a basic income for many years, and we built up Bien, the Basic Income Earth Network, which has thousands of members, and any of your listeners must join, please, because we are gradually winning the debate, I believe. And I believe a basic income is fundamentally an ethical matter, a matter of justice. Basic income, for those who are not familiar With the concept means that each individual in society should be provided with a modest, unconditional amount of money each month, paid from the the state, mobilized through the way I've just been talking about, probably, or through other forms. There are plenty of ways to pay for it. And that this would be based on three ethical principles. The idea, first of all, is that it's a matter of common justice. We have been deprived of our commons. We should have a compensation for that. It's also a matter of religious justice. If you're religious, I'm not, but if you are religious, God gave people unequal talents, and in a sense, giving everybody a basic income would be a compensation for those who don't have the talents of making money or being successful. We would have in this concept supplements for those who have extra costs of living, people with disabilities or people with particular needs or lack of opportunities. There would be supplements because the idea is that everybody should have equal basic access to resources in which to build their lives. You could have other benefits on top of that, so don't think that this is meaning every other public benefit goes, you don't do that. Now, the idea of a basic income is also a matter of freedom. You can't be free if you're chronically insecure. Basic income enables more people to say no to exploitation or oppression. A basic income also defends liberal freedom, the freedom to be moral. You can't be moral if you have to just do what you never have to do to survive. You can only be moral if you can make a reasonable choice based on what I think is right to do, proper to do. And it also strengthens Republican freedom, the sense of being free from the power of people or institutions of unaccountable power. A woman is not free if she has to ask her husband if she can do X or Y, even if she knows that 99% of the time he will say yes, a woman is only free if she can make the decision herself. And where we've seen experiments of basic income, one of the findings is that some women move out of abusive relationships because they have a little financial independence. I remember then Nixon of all people actually made such an
0: experiment and we saw exactly that effect that women in relationships that were
1: appalling, actually finally had the freedom to leave. Yeah, I mean, the Nixon experiment was not very much, but there were some negative income tax experiments where you're absolutely right. They found that. But this is better than a negative income tax. And I'm glad that even Milton Friedman came to realize that. (laughs) Because a negative income tax is paid after the event for a start, and it's paid on a family basis. Basic income is paid. You have a right, whatever Mm. Else, you know what you're going to get tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, right? So the third thing about basic income is it would give people basic security. And security is a human need, basic security. And it's also a public good in the sense that you have basic security doesn't deprive me of having basic security. It's not like a private good. That you buy a lemon, I can't buy the lemon because you bought the lemon. So this is a public, but basic security is fundamentally important for behavioral reasons. The psychologists have taught us that if you don't have basic security, you lose your mental IQ. It diminishes. It genuinely diminishes your mental capacities. And of course, if you're diminishing mental capacities, why should we be holding people responsible for their actions? That is a critical question.
0: That is actually very tightly linked to the Finnish basic income experiment, where from the neoliberal point of view, they said, oh, well, people didn't work much more. That was the purpose, la, la, la. But what they saw, they didn't work less. uh, But what they saw was that these people who were very far from having a job on the normal market, what they did was actually having increased trust in others and society. And this itself started to build a foundation for relationships. So this is a very important dimension that if you feel insecure, you increase your distrust. And it's much easier for negative campaigning politicians to pit one group against another. In the experiments you have done, have you seen this effect that the competition, the rivalry, the hate between groups, have that diminished? Have have we started to build better communities?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Finnish thing, because I was advising at the beginning, I wanted it to be a community-wide basic income rather than for 2,000 unemployed. And of course, a lot of people have tried to make a criticism of the Finnish project. One thing is that, a lot of people were told by the media that it was a failure and that it was discontinued. I want to emphasize it was not a failure and it was not discontinued. It continued through to the end. And the things that you've said are absolutely right. The interesting thing is that nobody can criticize it on the grounds that it would reduce work and labor. There was no reduction. There may have been a slight increase in work, but there was also an increase in doing secondary activities and so on by the unemployed. But the finished experiment is only one of many. And you asked me a few minutes ago about those that have been done in developing countries. You're listening to someone who's had enormous privilege, very rarely given to an economist, of being able to put into practice something in which he believes and has been advocating. And I've been involved in the design and implementation of pilot schemes of basic income in Africa, in India, and in Latin America to a certain extent, and in Canada and in Europe, in England. And I'm now advising the Welsh government on a pilot that is taking place at this moment, and one in planned in Catalonia with the presidency. We have, it at the moment, approximately give or take a hundred pilots taking place around the world and we've got the results from a number and i would like to just summarize those results the first thing you see is improvements in nutrition particularly among children so that height for age goes up in children in developing countries the second thing you see is improvement in health particularly in, in developed countries particularly in mental health mental stability less stress feeling of being in control of one's life very important human needs the also health care and what we found in india for example where we did it with thousands of people was that health care improved and the taking of medicine went through to completion. Very important. Basically, when you get this basic income, people spend it to improve their lives. They spend it to give them a sense of belonging in their communities. And that comes through. I don't know that smallholder in that little village, what his or her particular needs are. Or the next person living just down the road, okay, they know better than I do. And I don't believe in paternalistic social policy. I believe that you must trust people and in return people will trust the state, if you like, trust the institutions of the state and behave better as a result of that. That's what you've just been saying about that. But all of the experiments have shown this tendency, not for every individual, of course not, but in general as a a thrust. And then improvement in schooling, people staying in school for longer, attending, performing better. Turned out that in one big pilot in North Carolina of all places, which happened to be a longitudinal study, it turned out that Over 16 years in which this essentially a basic income was being paid to one part of the community and not to another, at the end of the 16 years, the children, on average, taking other factors into account, were one year ahead in schooling, in their schooling attainment if they'd been in the basic income families. Now, that sort of finding that we've seen in developing countries, we've seen in the experiments that have taken place in rich countries as well and i want to emphasize the next point every experiment with basic income has shown that it results in an increase in work not a decrease but that actually Uh, worries me i mean you're an economist you're really
0: happy when people work more but no, I'm no, worried listen. that if you work more, you will have more income, you will have more environmental destruction, you'll have more growth and so on. No, no, so no, no. please comfort no, no. me now, Guy.
1: Yes. I. So I want you to listen further. Because <laughs> every time I make this case and there's a long chapter in my basic income showing all the evidence as well as the theory, somebody will go out and say, the trouble with basic income is that it will make people lazy and stop working, right? One of the sins of neoliberal economics and neoclassical economics is all the work that is most valuable for humans is treated as non-work. And that is the care, the care we give to our loved ones, the care we give to the community. None of it gets counted in economic growth statistics, And as a consequence, there's no compensation or respect for people who do that sort of work. One of the great things about basic income where we've done experiments is it leads people to doing more of the work they want to do and aspire to do rather than the work that a landlord tells them or an employer tells them, etc. It leads to a greater sense of respect about what they do and want to do And it leads to the sort of work we need to be encouraging. And I think that came through very clearly during the COVID period. And I want to conclude the benefits that we've seen because it's not just that increasing work, it's increasing the productivity, the collaboration, the cooperative spirit in which work is done. We've seen a sense of social solidarity in communities being strengthened, which is the essence of good work. Well,
0: that's actually a perfect ending of this episode. And thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. Bye.